This Week in Startups is brought to you by LinkedIn. A business is only as strong as its people, and every hire matters. Go to linkedin.com slash twist and get a $50 credit towards your first job post. Eight Sleep. The first bed engineered to improve your sleep through dynamic cooling and heating, detailed sleep tracking, and more. Try the pod for free for 100 days at 8sleep.com slash twist. And Brex, the corporate credit card built for startups with no personal liability, up to 20 times higher card limits, and huge rewards, Brex is perfect for venture-backed startups. Sign up at brex.com slash twist and get card fees waived for life by entering the code TWIST during sign-up. Hey, everybody. Welcome to This Week in Startups. I'm your host, Jason Calacanis. And today, we have the longest-running NASDAQ CEO on the program. And you're thinking, oh, you got Bezos. Finally, Jeff Bezos is on the program. No, he's the second longest-running public CEO. Today, I have the CEO and co-founder of Checkpoint, the security company that's worth around $20 billion uh, based in Israel. And his name is Gil Shaved. I got it right, Gil? Yeah. Very nice. Welcome to the program. Thank you. You've been at this for a long time. And when you started, people just were putting up websites and you decided to build essentially the first firewall. Do you get credit for the first firewall? I think we do. First, yeah. we started a little bit about a year before people did websites. So we actually huh. started in 93 and the web started in 1994. Right. And when we started, it was actually when the internet opened up, moving from being a purely academic network when only universities can connect to being an open one when every company or every person at home can connect. Yeah, so you were working on BitNet and maybe ARPANET, the, the precursors to the internet. Before that, when I was in the university, that's the models I used to know. Yes. Yeah, and do you remember the day you saw the first web browser? The web browser was in around 94, again, yeah. a little bit more than a year after we started them, the first mosaic browsers. Yeah. And that was a huge revolution that you can suddenly, you know, so easily access information. Do you remember the first web page you loaded? Do you remember mm -hmm. actually installing a web browser? I, no, I don't remember the first web page, but... Uh, it was a crazy time because at that time there were so few web pages made. I remember when I was at Fordham University and I saw for the first time, I guess it was Mosaic, and they had a web page that listed the new web pages that were launched yep. that day. I don't know if yep. you remember that log file. Yep. And every day there would be about, you know, three or four new web pages. Yep. So you could consume the entirety of the web yep. in about ten minutes. Then it became like twenty pages, then a hundred. But you could still consume the entire sure. internet. But you noticed when people put these into when people added an internet connection to their computer network at the office. Bad news started happening almost immediately, correct? Sure. Yep. And what was that experience that you first had that inspired Checkpoint? I had the idea for technology about network security about three years before I started Checkpoint. And that was technology that I got to the idea when I was actually in the Israeli army. In Israel, everybody serves in the army. I Mandatory was, services, one year or two? Uh, three years. Three? Three years. And actually, when you do something interesting, you usually sign up for more. So I huh. signed for another year. I was four years in the army, when, since like 18 to 22. Um, and uh, I drafted to a computer unit because I had tons of prior experience as a kid in, in computers. And one of my tasks in the army was to connect two classified networks, nothing to do with the internet. Mm. And we were really, really concerned about the 
the privacy of our network. And that's where I was requested to find the solution that will keep the security. Was this like a Banyan Vines or a Novell network or something? No, that was IP network. It was an IP network, An IP yeah. network. That's, uh, I, my experience was always about, you know, Unix open systems and TCP IP. So that's what I was drafted. They wanted to start using these technologies in the army. Uh, that's why they, and I, and I dealt a lot with that on the university beforehand. How much does the mandatory service define the work ethic and the lack of entitlement you see amongst Israelis, do you think? I don't know. It's part of our life. It's yeah. a, I, I don't know if it's good or bad. I mean, I think it makes us, you know, one of the things, in the army, there's a lot of good things and there's a lot of bad things. Yeah. One of the good things, for example, in technology and not just in technology, you get tons of responsibility at a very, very young age. Ah. I mean, you look at the typical company here, you get responsibility, you know, you graduate college, you work for a few years. When you're getting to be 27 or 28, you start to get some authority. In the army, the entire population is under 22. So by the time you're 19, you're already... Uh, you, it, do you have to do the army, then college? Is that the way it goes? Or that's can you usually do college, then army? You can do a college and then army, then you need to sign up for three or four years and you need to be accepted for that. So, for example, I even though I was deep into computers and actually I did some university before, during high school, I didn't want to sign up for three or four years. So I just went to the army directly. It, and they wanted you to take these networks that had important information on them. Just make sure it's secure. But they weren't on the open internet. No, no, this they were closed completely networks. private and actually were physically located one room next to the other. Interesting. And then you immediately realized this is vulnerable. Sure. And I mean, I realized that I need to create something that will filter the traffic and not everything should pass by. I looked for solutions in the marketplace. I couldn't find something good. I wasn't necessarily about developing. It was about solving the problem. Right. And I came up with this idea that I can write some, like define my own language that can define communication protocol, translate it into some virtual machine code that will screen the traffic very, very, uh, will filter the traffic very uh, very fast and, and produce the right results. And I did that. It was a small project and, and it worked. And that was like year 1990 or something like that. Then I got out of the army. I did many other projects. I felt, by the way, I felt it's a good idea because a good idea is something that solves a real problem. It's simple. It wasn't that complicated. And it's and it's unique, and somebody needs it. So and that because right, you couldn't all... find an equivalent in the yep. market. I didn't find equivalent. It solved the real problem. I didn't invent the problem. Somebody gave it to me, and um, and when I left the army, I said, well, maybe it's a good idea. Maybe it's, it's my chance to build my own product. And then I realized actually that nothing exciting about that. That going to you know big organization banks and convincing them that they need to compartmentalize their network and so on is doable but not exciting. So for two years I did many other things. And what did you work on? I yes. worked in the printing industry uh, which was very very interesting actually. Amazing. Like printing newspapers or magazines? Um, it, it was actually creating large format image setters and it's huh. a lot of... Uh, Things that may be common today, back then they were very advanced. And it was very interesting because it was a multi-dimensional project. When people built the printers, people built, there was, you know, lasers and electronics and mechanics and uh, and software. And I was in charge of the software. Yes. I did things for the material handling uh, industry. I worked for some company in New York that did automation of warehouses and things like that. Back then it was, a, you know, it's interesting to see back then it wasn't a hot market. 
with Amazon, it became a very hot market. Yeah. Now you read about it all the time. Um, and I did consulting for many hours. So I did a lot of different things. And then in 1993, about two years later, suddenly I saw that the internet is opening up. And like you described, all these companies are coming out and saying, we want to connect. And the next question, how do I keep all these 15,000 universities and the students there away from my network? Right. And that's where it rang a bell to me when I said, wow, I got the idea. I got the technology. This is the time to take my technology. Now I got the technology. Now I have a really, really hot market for that. And you were able to raise, I think, four or five hundred thousand dollars back then. Uh, Two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Two hundred fifty. Yeah. Take me through when you first discovered this concept of venture capital. When was the first time you heard those words? So, actually, we didn't raise it even from a venture capital. We or raised angel, it yeah. from uh, from another software company. Ah. And uh, we were actually looking at. We we said, what's our option? We said, for example, we can keep work, keep our day jobs, work at night, develop a product, and then start selling it. Yeah. That's a funding option. We realized it's not good because the internet is moving really, really fast. We've said maybe we sell the first product for a big bank and no, 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 charge $50,000 for it. And that's enough to finance us. We didn't... Yeah, get the client, have, client yeah. to pay. Yeah, we were... And we also decided that's not a good option because then we said, then we'll be a project for the kind client and the potentially here is the entire internet. Keep in mind, the entire internet is not the entire internet of today. It's a few hundred sites, but still different than one big customer. At this time, if it was 94, 95 timeframe, there were less than 10 million people on the internet. Much less. No, it like, was 93 and it was, so it was a, a couple of million, one or two million maybe. Um, I don't know how many students, but in terms of corporations yeah. and open, much less, yes. Much less, yeah. And so you find out that there are there's a software company who wants this. And they will pay you to uh, invest and own a portion of your company. Sure. We were very methodological. We went, we, first there were one or two VCs in Israel. We actually didn't even call them. We didn't think they would be interested in us. And then we just went, we said, okay, here is a software company of guys we know, and they might be interested in expanding and investing. We went for some, um, we went through two or three companies like that, not yeah. just one. We went through some people that from the banking or the finance industry and we wanted to. So we picked like three different sectors of potential investors. We showed them our ideas, all expressed interest, some more, some less. Um, and at the end, we had a race between two software companies that back to us, by the way, they look like giants. They were selling in millions of dollars. <laughs> Each one had about 50 employees. Wow. And to us, they An looked army. like, yeah. Like big companies, and at the end up, one company called BRM from Jerusalem won the the deal. The deal. Uh, they they got, by the way, a half of checkpoint for that amount. Two hundred fifty k for fifty percent. Yep, so when people 50. are complaining right now about a a ten million dollar cap for two million dollars back then, yep, it was no, not even close uh, to that. Yeah, and. Um, and we were able to run quick, and we chose them not just for the money. We chose them because they had they had some contacts. They were actually doing antivirus software for OEMs in the US, ah. eventually even for Symantec. And um, um, so we got see that they have contacts in the market, they know where to where they can help us and so on. And on the other hand, we weren't, we weren't thinking that they necessarily want to take over because it's not like they had the full channel or distribution model. So we chose them and we started running. All right, when we get back, I want to uh, understand how this went from being just this two-person company with 250K in the bank to becoming uh, much larger and then eventually going public when we get back on This Week in Startups. Hiring the right person takes a ton of time. You know this. And 
What do we lack as founders? Free time. We don't have any free time. Urgency can be your enemy when it comes to finding the best candidates. You might make a mistake and you might just hire somebody to fill a seat. And that's always a mistake. That's why LinkedIn is the best place to go find that talent because everybody is on LinkedIn and LinkedIn job screens candidates with the hard and soft skills you are looking for. So you're not going to rush and make a mistake, but you're going to be able to hire a person quickly and efficiently. Over 600 million people are members of LinkedIn. You know this because if you're hearing my voice, you have a LinkedIn profile and you've been on LinkedIn probably in the last hour or maybe day, just like the rest of us. And a hire is made every eight seconds on LinkedIn. That is crazy. And at launch, we are proof positive. We got Sir Charles, our director here at the studio, and Marine, our marketing manager, both through LinkedIn Talent Solutions. And here's a video of my associate Presh putting up a job posting for our client success manager. And our podcast is growing so much that he's looking for somebody with a specific set of skills. He writes that description. He adds some screening questions and he sets a daily budget. Bing, bang, boom. We're all set. We're going to start getting great candidates. Just that simply. And here is your call to action. This is unbelievable. You can get 50 bucks, a fitty. 5-0 by visiting linkedin.com slash twist to get $50 off your first job posting. LinkedIn.com, it's already in your browser's history, slash twist. That's all I need you to do. LinkedIn.com slash twist to get that $50 off your first job posting. Terms and conditions apply, of course, because it's giving you 50 bucks. All right, let's get back to this amazing episode. All right, welcome back. I got the uh, co-founder and CEO of Checkpoint. Uh, you can go visit them at checkpoint.com. How many employees you got now? Today, we got 5,300 employees. 5,300. That is mind-blowing, isn't it? Yeah. And on how many continents? All the continents, almost every major country. It's about a little bit more than 2,000 in Tel Aviv in our headquarters where most of our research is done. A little bit more than 1,000 in the U.S. And another, uh, the reminder in Asia, Europe... You're the biggest in Israel? You're the biggest tech company? We are the biggest, not necessarily by number of employees, but in terms of market cap, profits, we're the largest company in Israel. So uh, you uh, build this 1.0 product, and do you remember who your first customers were and how you sold it to them for how much? Yeah. So the first few, first we started before we even the first customers, we had a few beta sites. We had about 10 beta sites, mostly in actually in the, actually maybe one in the Bay Area, but most of them were in the Northeast, in the Boston area. Uh, it's closer to Tel Aviv. Yeah, halfway, half the flight, at least only eight hours. Yeah, and uh, we've got, uh, and there were some interesting organizations from uh, State Street, uh, Gillette, um, um, Lotus Software. Lotus, oh really? Lotus wow. was an amazing case. Mitch we, Kapoor? Um, not, Maybe he wasn't ever, there at the time. No, I think he probably think sold he it. he was there. But um, Lotus was a very interesting case. We showed them the software. They really liked it. They're out of 20 webs- beta sites that we did, 19 says we want to buy the product. And they're the only one that said, you know, you have a cool product, but we won't buy it because getting on the internet is uh, too dangerous. We're not going to connect. Wow. And that was, uh, and a year later, that was the nice thing. A year later, they bought twenty copies. So that's we realized that you can't, you cannot be not on the internet. Yeah, there, there's no choice there. And the 1.0 yeah. product, how did you come up with a price for it? Um, 
good good question because there wasn't a comparable market. You no. In many cases, you're saying that's my distribution channel, that's my pricing. There wasn't any software for the internet. So we were thinking, first we saw what there were some companies before us that didn't do a commercial product but provided the service. So for example, they charged $60,000 a year for building you a, a firewall service. Mm. And we were... We actually, what I said is very simple. I we I don't know where the market is going to go. Very high end, few customers, very big, or commodity like software that you sell for five hundred dollars. I'd rather start in the middle. Hmm. So we priced it at around nineteen thousand dollars, and we say you can go down from that price, or if it's a big company, they'll buy multiple copies, and it will be a like a hundred thousand dollar project with few copies and, you know, few copies mean many gateways that you'll connect to the internet. And so, I, I mean, my model was mid-price, so you can be flexible the way the market goes, go up or go down. Yeah. And, and we actually even offered one edition, we said, for $5,000 for startup companies, because I said I want companies like ours to, to say that it's not out of their league. So if you're a small company, 50 employees or less, you can go the whole things for $5,000. And the internet catches fire. Yeah. And people start buying it like crazy because they're getting attacked or because you just were very good at selling it. Like was there were there attacks that early on that people were recognizing and people causing damage or no? Yeah, there were attacks and there were attacks. I mean, I can tell you my first story. I installed our first beta sites at the company BRM, the company that invested in us. And that was way before we did the external beta sites or anything. I'm, uh, by the way, I installed it there because we couldn't, we didn't afford an internet line. We didn't have an internet line on our own. the ISDN line, the 128K? Yeah. The, the, the T1 or something, it was, yeah. we said. 5,000 a month back then. Yeah, I'm not sure, but he said it's just too expensive. Even yeah. a few hundred dollars to us looks like a lot. So, but they were, as I said, a big company, 30 employees, so on. So they they did one. I came to install the software. They bought a server, a Sun server to run that software. I installed it. Five minutes later, I see I get an alert on my console that somebody's trying to break in. Now, as a software developer, you know, my first reaction is it's probably a bug. I mean, yeah, because it was the second you turned it on. Yeah, second I turned it on. Nobody knows about us. Nobody, they connected to the internet. That's the first time. What are the connecting. chances? Yeah. What are the chances? So probably a bug. And when I started investigating, I look at the, all the IP addresses looks like they are valid and started tracing them back and the internet in Israel was like two dozen companies. So I immediately recognized where is it coming from, the company I used to know. And I called them and I said, you're attacking us, what's going on? Of course, they said, we're not attacking you, but Uh we know you, come check our network and see what's going on. So I drove back to Tel Aviv late, late in the evening, drove to their offices, started doing checking the forensic on their network. And I found out that somebody was in their network having full super user rights. Oh, they slaved their computers. Yep. And then I've checked where it's coming from. It came from Tel Aviv University, the Israeli electrical company, the utility company. I mean, basically I found out that there were a few people all over the network in Israel, all the companies, multinationals, local companies penetrating. We actually decided to call the police that early on. And the police decided to investigate that. And two weeks later, they arrested two teenagers that basically from their home computer got to everywhere in the internet. And then you hired those two teenagers? No idea. I still don't know who they are. I mean, <laughs> I will always stay there on the, we always stayed on the good side of things. But back then, in the, in the early days of this kind of hacking, in that, in that 90s period, most of the people hacking, would you agree, were 
trying to see if it was even possible and were kind of rambunctious kids, as it were? Yeah, it wasn't criminals. It wasn't necessarily people trying to... Uh, I mean, there were like students from Caltech and MIT defacing the website of both universities. Yeah. That's one of the early cases, even before the commercial internet, even... But it's uh, it wasn't criminals trying to get money in so much. When, when did that element start? And when did you realize this is a requirement for every company to so have? Think, so I think every company realized that. It's like having a door to your house. You, you have a house. It's on the main street. It's yeah. an actually maybe in the dark part of town because everything in the internet connects to everything. So everything is in, yeah. the, is in the scary part of town. And you realize that, uh, that you don't want everybody to walk into your living room. You don't have to see that they, cause, that they murder you. You just realize yeah. that you don't want all these people in the street in your living room, whether they are nice people or they are scary people. You yeah. still want them out. So every company that's connected wanted to uh, ask about firewall. It was very clear demand. Yeah. And when did the criminal element start? Do, do you think there was a moment in time where people realized, oh, there is a business, there is a financial motive in breaking into other people's computer systems? Uh, I think there were a few. I think first it was late 90s and actually became much, much bigger in the 2000s. Yeah. And there are many things that caused that. But even later, you re people realize once you had shops on the internet, you realize that you can get into a shop and change the price. So that's yeah. So now you can buy something for free. Still, by the way, doable on many websites. It's you can easily get in, change the price, change the order. price to zero, and buy ten of that uh, thing and and change it back, and nobody notices that you bought something for free. Yeah. So I mean, there are many, many elements like that. I mean, shutting down your networks because somebody's trying to see what's noisy. By the way, we had a lot of hacktivists, what's called, that are shutting down networks with uh, with attacks like that. Mm. And their motivation wasn't to uh, to make money, but to show that they can or to cause some damage, to show that, you know, the banks are evil, whatever, which yeah. is not... Uh, uh, so, I mean, these, these things still happen, and they happened also in the early days of the internet. The organized crime that tries to make tons of money out of it, or, by the way, the the sort of government-sponsored uh, uh, espionage and attacks, they're, they're, they came a little bit later, at the beginning yeah. of the 2000s. Yeah, it was a Web 2.0 thing. People started yeah. to realize, hey, if we break in here and we can compromise somebody's emails, compromise somebody's passwords... There might be money to be made. There could be ransoms. And then did cryptocurrency become the sort of um, the jackpot of all jackpots for the financial motive? Because yeah. before then, were people actually asking people to wire money to a bank? It's pretty easy to get caught. But with crypto, you had something of value that was relatively anonymous. I know it's not completely anonymous, but it's anonymous enough that you can just say, hey, send money to a wallet and we're done here. You're, you're absolutely right. There has been criminals that try to to get money even in the 80s through wiring it to some weird countries. Not an easy task. And the cryptocurrency completely changed it because suddenly the criminals had the currency that they can charge and, you know, telling you pay one Bitcoin or half a Bitcoin. And suddenly there was a, a financial vehicle that you can use to uh, to make money. So absolutely. Yeah. All right, when we get back from this uh, quick break, I want to talk to you about this story that happened, gosh, it, I think it's been a year now. Um, uh, I think it was Supermicro in China. I'm sure you're aware yeah. of it. There was this Bloomberg report 
that the Chinese might have been putting, or some organization in China was putting on the motherboards some worms or or some um, code that could then activate at some point in time. I want to know how that story resolved when we get back on This Week in Startups. Listen, if you're a founder, you're probably using a million different techniques to be better at your job. You know what the number one thing is? Getting a good night's sleep. That's how you become more efficient. That's how you become crisp and you make great decisions. That's the ultimate hack. You want to get a great night's sleep. And eight sleep is the first bed engineered to improve your sleep. I have this this bed and I love it. You can set the temperature on two sides of the bed. So my wife, she likes it a little bit uh, warmer than I do. I like it nice and cool. You can set the temperature and then you can look at your sleep scores. One of the things you can do is you can make minor adjustments. And one of the things I noticed was there were some lights on outside. You know, you have lights on a timer and we just set the lights back two more hours and all of a sudden my sleep score went up. I realized I had ambient light coming in from outside that was unnecessary. In addition to that, I had thermal alarm from the eight sleep bed. What this meant was it made it slightly cooler when I needed to get up at seven o'clock and my heart rate goes up and I wake up naturally. I felt so rested. I could never sleep on another bed that doesn't have the eight sleep feature set. It is amazing. Customers who sleep on the pod fall asleep 15% faster. They toss and turn 25% less and they increase that deep sleep. That's the one you want. They increase it 17%. And it's just an incredibly comfortable bed. So supercharge your health and productivity like I am. Get the sleep you need and deserve by heading to 8sleep.com slash twist. 8sleep, E-I-G-H-T, sleep, S-L-E-E-P.com slash twist. And you get to try the product risk-free for 100 days. They'll take it back if you don't like it. You're going to love it. That's how confident they are. Great job, 8sleep. And uh, really happy to be an investor in the company as well. Thanks for making some room on the cap table for me. All right, let's get back to this amazing episode. There's been a lot of uh, talk about this Bloomberg story last year and a lot of talk just in general about Huawei and maybe people in the West or the free countries in the world even using Huawei routers. Um, But this one story was very acute, putting some type of chip or some code on motherboards that would then unlock at certain points in time. Does this story seem, because it was denied, obviously, like these things are, does that story have any legs or does it sound to you like it would be possible or probable? I think it's possible and probable. I Both. don't have any evidence that it did happen. Yeah. I mean, we we saw the news reports and they were, and some people denied them. On the other hand, they, I mean, nobody proved one or the other. But whether it's possible, it's definitely possible. And by the way, it's computers that arrived with infected bio software and stuff like that, we're seeing a lot of time. That happens a lot. It's not even that difficult. It's not that difficult because somebody is in the factory and they just take out one BIOS chip and just reload yeah, replace it. The, and replace the master and that's it. And that's, uh, and that's Now you got happen. a thousand webcams or a thousand servers that have this bug in it or this software that calls home at uh, some point. But you're also seeing it on smaller scales as well. You have startups that you've heard of that have had their money stolen. So, for example, we published actually this week that uh, we were called a few months ago to investigate a case with a small startup, 10, 15 people, so a really tiny startup in the medical field uh, that was raising money from a Chinese investor. And they realized that they they raised a million dollars. And somehow, a few weeks after the money was supposed to be in their account, they realized that the money is not in the account. And they communicated and communicated until they figured out something went wrong. And the money is not there, even though the Chinese VCs sent the money. 
And they called us to do an uh, investigation. On, we, they, they didn't use anything for security, which explains some of the issue. Yeah. And they're using plain uh, open email servers on the internet, hosted, uh, hosted email service. Um, and we started investigating and find out that there was a gang that was in their emails for a few months, setting up fake email accounts. So basically rerouting all their emails to a fake server and then rerouting it back to them and vice versa, doing the same thing on the Chinese investor. Wow. And for months, we were monitoring the communication, create, understanding how to explain, how to write. And at one point, like we are saying, okay, what's your bank details? They changed the mail with the... <gasps> Wow. the other bank details. And then, is it fine? Should I call you? And just communicating all of that to the point that at the day that we were supposed to get the money, the, the CEO of the company and the VC were supposed to meet in some conference. And the, and the uh, hackers were afraid that when they shake their hands and exchange the details, they realize that something is wrong. So they actually wrote to, to both parties, an email from the other party that's saying, sorry, I won't be able to make it to the conference they after all. mutually canceled. Yeah, both mutually canceled oh, and say, wow. let's meet in the next opportunity. And the money got wired to the wrong bank account. Probably, by the way, they got, even the, the VC got an acknowledgement that they received the money because they faked the email. And oh the and the Talk problem, about a man in the middle attack. Yeah. And when they sent, <laughs> probably then the sent a message, might have said, yeah, the money still it will take a few more days or something. And the money is gone. And that's a real case that happened just a few months ago. I met last month some customers in London. They'd heard the similar story in London. So it's probably the same group deploying the same technique on multiple cases. And that's not a small one. A million dollar seed money for a small startup. That's pretty big. That's incredible. Yeah. And you just think about the amount of effort that took. They had to intercept both of their mail servers uh, and then, which probably happened because they had the ability to get to their ISPs. Yep. And then for months, they sat reading yep. the emails. This is sophisticated. Yeah. That's a long game. Yeah. But you see, there should be somebody sitting again. It can be in any country in the world doing that job, maybe monitoring 10 or 20 companies and waiting for the right moment. And if you make a million dollars every few months, that's not, uh, I mean, I don't think I should, any one of us should be in that business, but it's not, uh, it's not a bad business. Yeah. Uh, there's more at stake and it's very interesting. It used to be that nobody would put their credit card on the internet and now people have no problem sure. putting their entire net worth on the internet. Yeah. It's been a big, a big swing. When you look at the, the the state actors out there, they're getting sophisticated. The big players seem to be China, the U.S., Israel, and Russia. If you were to rank those in terms of ability, how would you rank them? I'm, Are they I'm, all kind of in the same league? I think very similar league. Probably the U.S. has capabilities better than anyone else. Um but all the others are also very good. By the way, the British are also very good. There is a lot mm -hmm. of other nations that develop these capabilities. But the scary part is not whether you are going to need to fight. First, you are. many of us will need to fight some foreign governments that will break into every company in every country. Mm -hmm. But that's not the, main, the number one risk. The number one risk, that's the number two risk. The number yeah. one risk is that the same tools that they develop find themselves to find their way to the open market. Ah. So and everybody can use them. 
and there are some tools that were very good. I remember actually it was an Israeli company that was able to backdoor into the iPhone because we had a, a shooting here, tragic uh, shooting. Uh, Islamic terrorist shot up, uh, was it San Bernardino, I believe? Yeah. And Apple wouldn't backdoor the phone, even though it was apparent they could. And an Israeli company did. Yes. I'm curious your take on uh, the very delicate issue of should these companies have backdoors? Facebook has suddenly said no backdoors uh, in their messenger products. Does that seem reasonable to you personally, knowing what you know, being essentially the grandfather of all of this security? I think that most companies don't put backdoors intentionally. I think these backdoors exist because of bugs in software. Got it. And last year, just to get the statistics, there is a an organization that tracks all the vulnerabilities that are found. In 2018, they found 16,555 known vulnerabilities in everything that we use. I mean, so, I mean, it's not um, a, close to 800 of them in mobile devices, hmm. iOS and Android. So just to give us an explanation that these backdoors exist, whether we like it or not, I don't think they are put intentionally by the uh, companies. But should they? Because we now have our government saying we, we have a little bit of a standoff where people in the FBI, putting aside Republican, Democrat, there are people in our intelligence service who think it is not patriotic of the big tech companies here to not give them access. And now we have our tech companies saying, you know what? I think people's privacy is more important and our ability to ensure that is more important. Where do you personally stand on this issue? Because this seems to me to be a very hard issue to reconcile. I think that if I'm developing a product, my responsibility is to develop the best product. My responsibility is to my customers to have absolutely the best product that I can develop. Yeah. And I shouldn't have any, uh, any you know, capabilities that are not well known to my customers because that can be turned... It can be used by for good purposes, but it can also be used for very bad purposes. And my customer needs to know that my only responsibility is to make the best product for them. Right. Even if that same technology can be used by terrorists or other bad actors. Every technology can be used. We know our cars are used by people that run over people. And, uh, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm not talking about technologies that are meant to cause damage like guns. But again, guns are also for defense. Right. But, but, I mean, you know, car is the basic one. I mean, fire. The, the biggest damages on Earth happen due to fire. Now, we also need fire to heat and to cook and to yeah. generate energy. And, and so, I mean, every technology can be turned against us. There is nothing uh, new in that, uh, in high tech that changes that. What do you think of this tour network? This has been one that's particularly interesting to me because I know that the a lot of the, the government agencies were involved in the creation of it and the yeah. sponsoring of it. There is a belief that this does, in fact, allow people to anonymously surf the internet and, and browse. But I look at it and say, you know what, this seems to me like a system that could actually be compromised. Do, do you think that is actually what it claims to be, a completely neutral uh, anonymous platform? I think it's a neutral platform, but again, for everything, the, the sophistication of people who want to break in is always, they're going to find some weakness in everything. The weakness mm -hmm. is not in the network. The network is not going to point to you, but maybe somebody can send you a file or, uh -huh. and that file will 
you know, beep and say, this is who I am. And by the way, that's what's happened in many of these cases when uh, the FBI wanted to uh, crack a pedophile network. Yep. The FBI used it actually to send files that will uh, ring on the home regular... And, home and beacon. Yeah. yeah. And we'll do that. So, I mean, we've seen the techniques. And when you look at that world, and that world is fascinating, I'm very glad, by the way, that I'm not... that I'm part of the white side of it, of yeah. just defending... But when you look at the risk and the creativity that exists amongst the hackers of how to break in, it's unbelievable. Yeah. I have a team that's doing research and trying to find vulnerabilities so we can close them and we can notify the world. And I'm meeting with these people every week or two, and I'm fascinating every, every time by their level of creativity and what they find and what they can do and the new ways they can find to get systems that you think are sort of... Uh, yeah. Isolated. All right. When we get back from this final break, very important. I want you to tell us if you think two-factor authentication and biometrics are uh, everything they're cracked up to be. Are they actually protecting us or are they going to be the next two things to fall uh, when hackers figure out how to break them and backdoor them when we get back on This Week in Startups? Okay, when Brex founders Henrique and Pedro came to the U.S. from Brazil, they were working on a virtual reality startup, and they were rejected over and over again for a corporate card because they had no credit history. And so they pivoted that business from virtual reality to financial reality with the Brex card, the corporate card that all the startups you know are using and rave about. It's a card specifically designed for startups, and here is why thousands and thousands of founders are using Brex. Number one, it doesn't require a personal guarantee, so you're not on the hook, founders, and you don't have your credit score or your assets at risk. They underwrite your startup, not you as the founder, so card limits are up to 20 times higher than traditional corporate cards. That makes total sense. And they eliminate the hassle of tracking receipts with their automatic receipt matching tool. So when you got everybody on different cards and they're spending a bunch of different stuff and you gotta reconcile that, that's time, time equals money, they got the software to do that, and you get huge, ridiculous rewards, like seven times the points on Uber, and you get four times the amount on travel, three times on restaurants, my favorite, maybe a little Peking duck, yum yum, and two times on reoccurring software. They know what you're buying. They know you're buying that Uber. They know you're traveling, getting that Peking duck. So here is your call to action, everybody, if you're a venture-backed startup based in the U.S. of A., Brex was built just for you. Sign up at Brex, B-R-E-X slash twist and get card fees waived for life. What? For life? What a deal. That's B-R-E-X slash twist and use the promo code twist at sign up. Okay, let's get back to this amazing episode. All right. It's okay if I call you the godfather of security. Mm, I wish. I mean, maybe. I think so. Of the internet, maybe. Godfather of internet security, yeah. Um. Not going to comment on anything, Mossad or anything. No, no, nothing. Absolutely, absolutely not. not. Me neither. I've never been on any missions. You know, sometimes you need a, you know, a Catholic boy. Maybe I can get into certain situations. I'm sure you can trade I'm some not... information. You know, I'm not saying I'm, you know, CIA, nothing, anything like that. I'm too high profile. I'm not saying I wouldn't if I was asked to do my duty for my country. Uh, two-factor authentication. Is still not mandatory, which is bizarre to me. And biometrics um, are now being built into the phones. Face ID, um, thumbprint on the back, fingerprint on the back. Actually, that was an Israeli company bought by Apple, I believe. 
biometrics, two-factor, are these things um, really powerful in uh, protecting us? Or do you think that they're easy to compromise? I think they are very powerful in protecting us. I don't think that they cannot be compromised. Right. I, I think it just makes it much more difficult and much less effective to do that. But again, and, and again, as, as I mentioned before, the creativity of the hackers is unbelievable. I mean, you, do, you can fake some of the biometrics or you can just change your registration. Mm. Mid-register a new uh, fingerprint, register a new picture of your face somehow. And um, as I mentioned, it's unbelievable to see the level of creativity that sophisticated hackers can have. The audit trail seems to be to be underutilized. I'm noticing now that Google is getting very um, detailed about the audit trail. And actually, Apple is following suit. When you log in with a new device, it tells you on all the other devices. Yeah. You get an email. You get an alert. Hey, this device from this IP address. That seems to be one of the biggest things, just reading your audit logs and, and being on top of it. But people don't do that basic task, do they? Some do, some don't. I think what uh, some of these companies doing is actually pretty good. Yeah, I think that mm, some of them, by the way, got compromised too. We've seen cases where there have been backdoors or not backdoors, where have been exploits that could have changed some of it on their networks as well. But I think the more we do, the better it is. And it's better to know that somebody is accessing my account. And if it's not me, I should be alerted or do something about that. But it is a pretty big challenge, yes. Yeah, the worst thing I heard was somebody made a domain name that was similar to another company. So if the company was Apple, they would get the domain name, you know, Apple Computer, yep. but they would get, you know, leave off the last E or something, .com. And then they, you know, take their mail login or call customer support from an email address at Apple Computer. And yep. then they basically convince the person on the customer support line to give it up. How often... In your experience, are these hacks basically human factoring? They're figuring out a weak human in the in the in the process. Is that half of all hacks? You think um, a third? I don't have percentage, but it happens a lot. Yeah. Uh, but the really dangerous ones are not these ones. The really dangerous ones are the automatic ones which simply crack through our. I mean, sometimes they start with something like that, like identity theft. Yeah. Like by the way, many of the hacks that we have are starting with a mobile phone that's being compromised. We don't even know that it was compromised because the hackers use the mobile phone to steal your credentials, and then the attack actually occurs on your cloud account, on your enterprise network. The source of it is the hacking of your mobile phone, but when you account for the uh, for the uh, when you look for where did the attack came from, you're saying it was on my cloud account. You're not oh. realizing it started with stealing your credentials on the mobile phone, for example. Intercepting. And by yeah. the way, we call that's part of what we call fifth generation attacks, but we call their multi-vector. It's not somebody attacking you, somebody following you, stealing something from you, and then using it somewhere else. And in the third, fourth, or fifth stage of the attack, the damage is actually occurring. Ah, so they try to get you on your phone maybe compromise your phone, maybe in your phone, they get your bank details, they get your secret email address, yep. then they start working four or five different angles. Yep. And this is a lot of effort on the part of the hackers. Um, sometimes, sometimes it's not, I mean, I mean, it's, it's again, you need to invest in order to be a good hacker. Yeah. But people are doing that. And, and let's remember one thing about software and the internet. Once somebody established a methodology 
they can bring it as a tool that everybody can use. And many of the criminal networks that we see today are not that, you know, there's one whiz guy that know how to write emails to people, convince them to do certain things, write malicious software on multiple platforms, create a payment system that charge the money. That's building a business. That's yeah. complicated. What you're seeing is like in the, re in the real world, that there is different people doing the different elements. And if you want to run the crime, you just need to rent the elements from the professionals. So the programmer that actually did that, again, I don't want to defend them by any means. They are right. criminals. But they feel like they wrote some software and they rent the software. They're not stealing money. They're, right. getting, they're getting money for, you know, renting you some software that they wrote. And apparently that software is the one that knows how to break to your computer. Yeah. Are and our phones... Would you? Why are Microsoft Windows computers been historically so much more vulnerable than the Apple ones? I mean, it, you would think Microsoft, after being such a big target, so many virus problems over such a long period of time, would just lock down that operating system. Why can't they? Because we got used to the fact that Windows is open and you can run any software on it. Uh. And there's a lot of APIs that you can do anything you want with them. And Microsoft mm. doesn't regulate what you can or cannot do with your PC software and with the APIs that exist there. And Apple does. Apple controls every piece of software that runs on our iPhone. You need to go through the yeah, App Store. Yeah. There's no other legal way or valid way to do that. And Apple decides there's many, many rules that Apple has about what can every API in the, on, on the App Store can do. You cannot use it for anything you want. They say what it should be used for. And if you violate it, they throw you out. Which one are you more in favor of? Which one do you use yourself? Are you part of the open hacker Windows Android ecosystem? Well, or? first, the open one started actually with the Unix and Linux. Yeah. I'm from that party. I yeah. was never, a, I wasn't a Windows programmer. I was a, a Unix programmer when I can see the whole source of the operating yeah. system, when I can understand everything, when I can modify it. So I came from that camp, yeah. uh, which is still, by the way, that. Well, camp. what do you advise people? Civilians, they should just use Apple products that are tighter. I don't think it matters. I think yeah. it's uh, all the products are vulnerable. I, I mean, uh, it doesn't matter what I use, and uh, but it's uh, the struggle on mobile is between Google and uh, and Apple, and both have their own benefits. Google is doing an amazing job and in investing a lot in security, and it's a little bit more open. And Apple is also doing a good job, and it's more more con more closed environment. This is like tangentially related, but have you been following the real fakes? kind of concept where they can make videos of you and I yeah. or celebrities talking and video. How is this going to impact security when people can start calling people on the phone or video conferencing? You don't even, you're seeing video and you don't, sure. it's you. Like you're, you might have somebody call your spouse yeah, absolutely. Over FaceTime and they wouldn't be able to tell it's not it's, you. And they say, hey, can you get me, can you find my uh, pin code? Like, so this is saw, coming, right? Yep. And we saw the first crime. It already happened. What? The first crime happened in Europe where some UK company that has a branch in Germany, their CEO called his general manager in Germany and asked what? him to wire money to some supplier. <gasps> he wired the money because he got a personal call from the CEO. Please help me in that. And it turned out that... Uh, it was a deep fake? The deep fake for, <gasps> for recording the voice of the CEO. By the way, 
when you speak about mobile phone, and I see a lot of people who say, I don't care, they can break into my phone. What do I have to hide? So I think even your voice is something you want to hide now. Because yeah. how do you, you know, your voice, you can get it on the internet. Yeah, you get a thousand episodes. Yeah, yeah but, they can uh, make anything out of me. But, uh, but regular people for voice... You get it if you hack to your to their phone, and that. then you can call. And then you hack to your phone. On the phone, there's the bank account details. There's the there's the who's the phone number and the person, the bank you're calling. And now somebody can do a transaction on the bank. The bank will call you back, and the deep fake will answer the call and say, "Sure, it's me. Please do that. I'm I approve." Which is the most sophisticated thing. Yeah, what I do does. now is if somebody if. Somebody tries to call me like that. I say, listen, I can't talk right now. Give me your phone number and e- email me your phone number so I can call you back. And then I check and then I check the existing phone number. So I, ha- I know that people are trying to do this with me. So if you just tell them like, you should never, if anybody calls you on the phone, you sure, should but- assume you're being scammed. No, but sometimes you would call the bank. And again, you can, with, with deep fake, you can... Do almost the, 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 and by the way, if I hack your phone, I can do everything because I can call on your behalf from your phone and that's, and that's valid. And it's not that, unfortunately, it's not that difficult. We've just seen several crimes like that, uh, uh, of somebody that they got stolen over $20 million of uh, Bitcoin from their mobile phone. Yeah. And, uh, and again, it's a very simple, you know, we got this. SMS, you talked about multi-factor authentication through SMS, which is great. And I recommend that everybody will use that. But again, it's a very, very simple. We demonstrated that like two or three years ago in our customer conference, how you take over someone's phone and get their SMS messages. Yeah, you just replicate their SIM card. And uh, not even to replicate. You just need to know their number. It's actually done through roaming over GSM networks. If I say I'm you and I'm roaming, Okay, now in order to do that, you need to have access to someone, to some other GSM network that will trust you. Ah. And there is few in Africa that it's really easy to get into. Ah. So, I mean, it's, it's, and we demonstrated it like two or three years ago when we got, we got like three, four years into the mobile security space. You ever, you ever go to DEF CON? I didn't, but I have many people that do go there, yes. Yeah, it was pretty interesting. I went there one time and I walk into the lobby of the hotel in this four ATMs. And I just thought to myself, what hotel has four different ATM brands in the lobby? Two, maybe. Four? And it turns out they have now, they just roll ATMs. You put your card in, you type in your PIN, it's like, oh, sorry, we're out of cash. And now they've got your PIN. Yeah. And they've got your face. And they got your face and they got everything. They got everything. Yeah. How do you, what, what do you think the best practices are? If you're talking to a family member who's a neophyte, what do you tell them in terms of like, here are the steps protecting yourself beyond obviously having firewalls and using all First consumers, and it's a little bit easier than enterprises. Yeah. Enterprises, is my, my, enterprises is my field and it's a little bit more sophisticated. Consumer, be very, very careful. Make sure it's a, you have backup of everything you do. Make sure you know your passwords and you don't share them. Uh, use multi-factor authentication uh, and use software. I think the software that we have in the industry, and again, yeah. consumer is not my main field, even though we make some consumer software as well. Use that. I mean, the password are, managers that put huge strings together are safe. It's, it's a good not idea. Just that. It's not just that. It's just, I mean, do you use anti-malware software on your mobile phone? You know yeah. that it can be hacked. We use antivirus on every PC in the world. Hmm. 
and we don't use anti-malware on our Android or iOS phone. Mm -hmm. And why? I mean, this can be hacked. And by the way, it is, um, we have our software, I actually, of course, we have many customers yeah. that are using that, but I'm actually sometimes giving it uh, to some of my friends. Yeah. And many of them are business owners and sophisticated people. And they all come back a few weeks later and say, you don't know, I've clicked on that link and it turned out it was a malicious site. And I mean, it, it is quite... The spear phishing is the scary one. That's how they keep catching people. These idiot politicians, for some reason, it's like log in to view this document and they show them what looks like Google Docs and they don't even look at the URL. It's very hard to catch that if it's done right. I mean, I can tell you that 99% of these cases are not done in the most professional way. But uh. to do a fake, it's very easy because everything is available. You can just copy it. There is nothing that, I mean, to look like Amazon website or a Bank of uh, Canada website, it's very easy. You just copy the website. You right. don't need to be an artist to do that. <laughs> yeah, it's not like you're forging $100 Yeah, you don't need to forge it. You just copy it. It's digital and you copy bit by bit the exact thing. And you make only slight modifications that are very hard to track. I'm getting messages and sometimes I look at the messages. I just got one from my healthcare provider. And I said, is this real or fake? I mean, I, I can't tell and I really can't tell. I mean, yeah. No, I mean, and if you have any kind of bank account, super hard to tell. Yeah. Um, and then they, you know, the stupidest thing is they're like, tell us what city you were born in or your first car. It's like uh, most people's first car was a Honda like uh, or Toyota, like. These secondary security questions can also be gamed pretty easily. Uh, I think. That's true. And apparently, I think it's the, the issue is the, the level of sophistication that you need to do. And I think what we have to remember, you don't have to be the, you know, the number one in the world. You just need to be a little bit faster than your neighbor because then he will get caught. So that's so. Yeah. Yeah, I don't have to outrun the bear. I just have to outrun you. Yeah, exactly. The that's bear. the exact that's I mean, the this exact is what two-factor does. If you have two-factor on yeah. and you check your audit logs, a hacker is going to probably go on to the next The person. easier one, and there is a lot of easier one. It's true, by the way, for consumer. It's true for enterprises. Now, again, I would advocate to get the highest level of security, but the more you raise the bar, the chances of you getting hacked are getting yeah. much, much lower because your neighbor... Isn't. It isn't. And by the way, that's the way the professional hackers are working. They are sending, they are scanning the network, trying to infect everyone with the bot. Then they got the bot in. Now that they got the bot in, they see some of them just say create an attack on everyone. Some of them might say, okay, we got, we tried the 100,000 IP addresses. We got to 100. Not bad. Now let's see which one of the 100 is interesting and where we should now plant or more sophisticated. And then the way all the malware works is like that. You use some exploitation, mm. you, you install a bot, this bot is programmable, the, the payload, then you send the payload. And the mm. payload can be nothing or the payload can be extremely malicious. So like when you talk about mobile phones, we found networks that control 50 million mobile phones. Most of them used by not very malicious thing, by like ad baiting or click baiting, Ugh. which is a small, it's a crime, but it's a, a small commercial, economical crime. Mm. These networks within one minute can be turned into the most malicious network in the world. Yeah, to a big denial of service denial attack. Denial of service or stealing all your credential or Ugh. erasing the phone. Think about 10 yeah. million phones that get erased in a minute. What's the damage economically? Chaos, chaos it creates. And I'm, by the way, pretty sure that if I was a really bad organization or really bad government, I wouldn't 
put straight on malicious stuff on everyone's phone. I will build this network. I will make it something that doesn't look that bad. Mm. And at the D-Day that I really want to create an attack, yeah. I will use that. And if in the meantime I'm getting caught, I'm saying that's this company, of course I will arrest them. They're criminals. Yeah. I mean, we've seen that, by the way, many hacks that the world has identified the hackers and somehow some government gave them sort of, somehow they disappeared yeah. somewhere in the world. Yeah, they were, they were yeah, providing good information, so they got a pass. Yeah. Yep. You worry about the grid. You worry about the electrical grids and this kind of stuff. And are they big customers for you? They are customers, and they are good customers, but the grid is definitely all the infrastructure that we have is very, very vulnerable because it's made out of very old software. Yeah, Most software is not updated, is not patched. Oh. It's really simple. It's really easy to hack into. Yeah. And uh, we should be very, very worried, which, by the way, it's true both for the old grid and the old infrastructure and also for the new infrastructure, which is IoT-based and super easy to penetrate usually. Yeah, they're putting these like IoT cameras everywhere that have no firewalls on them, no yeah. security. But then on the reverse, well, we might have sped up some centrifuge uh, tubes and ruined some people's, uh, you know, ability to get that uranium to where they wanted to get a bomb. Yeah, but we need to. So that's what I'm saying. Each Who's one of us. Who do you think's got the best offense? I wish I knew. I'm not. Mm. Uh, and by the way, as I said, it doesn't matter that much because everything is imitated. Ah. You, you can understand the fact that the U.S. has, you know, this. Uh, uh, F-35 jet fighter, even if some any other country in the world knows about this plane, they can't replicate it easily. No. On the other hand, it requires a lot of resources to replicate it. Yeah. Even if I give them all the planes, by the way. Still, mm -hmm. there's hundreds of different systems that are not easy to replicate. Taking the most sophisticated malware, it's software piece, it's available on the internet. Once you find it, you can simply take it and use it. And mm. that's what's happening. The NSA toolkit uh, three years ago was leaked and it's available on the dark web to yeah. everyone. And last summer we had the city of Baltimore. Was that the Snowden? Was that part of Snowden uh, that that leaked? Or? No, that wasn't Snowden. That was yeah. something else. That was uh, some corrector of the NSA by mistake left it open oh. and the entire toolkit le leaked. Uh, and by the way, the exact same toolkit was used last spring to attack the city of Baltimore to shut down the city with ransomware. And the ransomware used the NSA toolkit that's just, you know, a few <laughs> miles away from Baltimore. Yeah. Uh, oh, so, yeah, it's, yeah. so these things are real. It's not theoretical. It's not science fiction. It's not crimes that never happen. They happen every day. Do you court the gray hats, the black hats to come to the to the white side and be part of the good uh, security teams is that still part of the playbook to try to convert those folks our to playbook, work for you our playbook is to deal with white hats and only not yeah. with people that have a bad background and so on and by the way the way we operate in israel that's also a very good uh, first there are enough uh, these people and we also train a lot of these people ourselves there's mm -hmm. a there's a big shortage of people yeah. so on one hand we get some skilled people but mainly we now we have like a course, uh, Checkpoint Security Academy, our top training program for our own people that we open uh, every year. And we get people that come with pretty much no background, but are extremely smart and sophisticated. And three months later, they became the top, uh, the top researchers. How much did that uh, company that invested the 250, how much did they wind up making when they uh, sold their shares? 
when Do you they, even they know? sold it. I, I don't know exactly. I didn't follow that, even though yeah. I can probably find. We yeah. have, but it's got to be one of the best investments of all was, time. That was one of the best investment in all times. It, at the top, it was worth around $10 billion. Oh. Uh, I think they sold it a little bit earlier. I sold most of it at around that it was worth around more like a billion dollars, which well, is also not that bad. Not bad. <laughs> but uh, they sold it way too early. I mean, I did. I did. So I'm. Uh, I held my share. Yeah. Well, I mean, when you find something this great and a problem that is going to last many lifetimes, uh, yeah, you should play for the long, the long haul. And it's good to know that you're out there, like fighting the good fight. So I appreciate you coming on the pod, and I appreciate you uh, fighting that fight. You thinking about retiring, or you just love doing this? I love I said doing. You what... love this. <laughs> First, I love doing what I'm doing. And also for me, it's really my life, my family. And I really, really feel, I mean, I'm thinking about, will I do it forever? Is it too long? Yeah. Do I need to, you know, when you're a CEO, you wake up every morning, you don't just handle fun, fun stuff. You Mainly what you handle uh, is the problems. Yeah. So, but, so I'm thinking, but for me, it's like, it's like my family and I need to take care of my family. So yeah. I'd like to raise, and I do raise a lot of good people that help me. And I have an amazing team today in Checkpoint uh, that are doing most of the work. I don't work as hard as I used to. And I have many people to rely on, but uh, it, it's, it's wonderful when you can delegate. Yeah. Like when you have people who are that good, you don't have to worry about it. That's yeah. the magic. Yeah. It just shows you because sometimes you lose good people or they start their own companies. I'm sure you have. I know actually there's many Checkpoint alumni who've started companies. Yeah. yeah. A big one. All right. Listen, Gil, what a career. Congratulations on all the hard work. Thanks for coming on the pod. And uh, if you're not using Checkpoint and you're risking your entire business, get your head examined. Go to Checkpoint.com. All right. I'll see you all next time. Bye-bye. Bye.